Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brand. And this episode, we're discussing SST 81, the Black Flag Annihilate This Week live single. We've covered these songs before, but we've also got a special guest. Yeah, we've got Robert Vodica on the podcast today. It's a really good interview. I know we've mentioned his name a, f- a few times. I'll start before I forget by apologizing to Robert. I interviewed him over a year ago for the blog <laughs> and never I never did finish transcribing the interview. But I'm ha- I'm I guess I'm happier to to present him in this format. Yeah, he's def like he definitely works for this episode because uh, I mean it, you talk about it in the interview. I mean he did a a master's thesis on Black Flag and his analysis of Black Flag. It just when you think you know you can't discuss Black Flag anymore, Robert brings a new kind of uh, set of ears to black flag and it's really interesting yeah for sure uh, i hate to ask brant i'm almost afraid to ask but and i know this when this episode comes out this will have uh, happened a few weeks ago but did you go to record store day i did i didn't wait in line or anything like that there was nothing there was only one thing i really wanted this year and i got it no prob what's that uh i wanted the teenage head self-titled reissue it's for me uh as close as an album as there is to a perfect album i counted i have this will be my fifth version of this album if you're count <laughs> <laughs> if you count the marky ramon re-recording oh yeah um and i'm i don't consider myself a collector in that sense where i'm like i have to have every edition of an album but i just think this is just such an amazing album I just wanted to have it. It was expensive, as most things are on Record Store Day, but it was worth it because the liner notes are really killer and it comes with a, I don't know, what do you call it? It's like a bonus single on the inside and it's really cool because yeah. it's it's not a picture sleeve single. And yeah. so it like it feels like a real bonus single. Like, you know, if you're going to get working in a coal mine in, inside of... Uh, the Devo record or Gates of the West inside the Clash record. That's what this feels like. So it's very cool. Yeah. And these recordings, I do have this album on CD came out. I'm not talking about the Marky Ramon one. This actual release came out on CD uh, maybe five, six years ago. And these recordings are not on the CD. They're not anywhere that I'm, I'm aware of. They're, they're from a different recording session. It's the first Teenage Head single, Tearing Me Apart and Picture My Face. So worth worth the money for that because I don't have the original single. I thought the remaster was good too. Yeah, it is good. I'm assuming it's the same as the CD. I'll have to compare them. But yeah, it, it sounds really good. Yeah, I thought it was worth it for sure. You picked it up too, I'm assuming. Oh yeah. I thought you might be interested in that Salvation Army LP that came out. You know what? I didn't see that until afterwards. I didn't consult the record store day list, so all, I never do. Anything that I was interested in was like stuff that I, you know, bands that I follow on Facebook or whatever. You know what I mean? That were posting stuff. Or I just yep. I just saw it elsewhere. Everything that I saw that I really wanted, I hate to sound like this guy because I, I don't want to sound like, I just finished saying I'm not a record collector. I wanted the Johnny Thunders K Sarah Sarah 
I have two copies of that, the original vinyl and a CD version of it. I don't know, I didn't really check into what's different about this, but it sounds like it's maybe a remix, this new one. And I'm not too worried about, I didn't, I only went to one record store, my, my kind of, my main record store and he didn't have it. So I'm not too worried. I'll, I'll find it somewhere. I got that, the, uh, the alternate version of so alone last year, like two weeks after record store day. So the other one I had my eye on was the Jacobites, Robespierre's velvet basement, which I also have two versions of already. So (laughs) (laughs) my record store had that for 50 bucks and I just passed. It'll probably still be there. It'll probably still be there when I have money next time. But I did pick up this High on Fire 12-inch EP called Bat Salad. I'm sure I've talked about my love for High on Fire before. This is one I for sure wanted to get. Was it a Record Store Day release? It's a Record Store Day release, yeah. The A-side is a High on Fire original called Bat Salad. It's an instrumental. You probably, do you know, there's a song called Rat Salad, right? By Black Sabbath. I don't know that. It So on like some of the early Sabbath albums, there's little instrumental breaks before the songs that they gave song titles to. And I believe Rat Salad is like one of those instrumental breaks on the Paranoid album, I think before the song Fairies Wear Boots. This Bat Salad is kind of, to my ear, a tribute to those musical kind of interludes by Sabbath. They don't directly reference any sabbath track but it it's definitely i would say a tribute to to those it's really cool what's the story on this band high on fire yeah well i've mentioned him before it's it's matt pike's band he was in the band sleep way back when they are like oh yeah 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 i got it i got it i just think they're one of the best heavy metal bands on the planet right now uh the b-side is two covers into the crypts of rays by a band called celtic frost and the second cover on the b-side here's a little sst connection for you is a cover of don't bother me by the bad brains no kidding yeah and it's really good version too oh right on yeah so that and i guess the slight sst connection with the salvation army that i will eventually track down those are kind of the sst record store day things that I saw. What did you get, Ryan? I bet you got way more than I did. Why do you bet I got way more than you did? <laughs> I'm just guessing. Uh, well, I, maybe I did. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I got. I got that teenage head, of course. Couldn't yep. resist. Yeah. Um, I actually got the agent orange, like the re-release of, of bloodstains. Not my favorite agent orange. I'm more of a, this is the voice guy. Yeah. I like that album too. I actually really like the production on this is the voice that so do I. Yeah. It's like, I like the production on this is the voice in the same way that I like the production on the dag nasty record field day. I just, there's something about that. Or like early all records. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. But you grow Um, up with it, right? So yes. Yeah. Uh, I got the the live Green River record. Oh, there's a live one. I didn't know that. See? Yeah. Yeah. You got to check the list, man. Yeah, maybe. Um, hey. <laughs> I got uh, the uh, Mission of Burma Peking Spring because it was just a, I don't know. I didn't really need it, but I got it. And uh, it's a good package. It was nice to listen to it on a record rather than like in a compilation CD. 
and uh, I also got the Human Switchboard single that came out. That's that Cleveland band. Okay. And it comes with a big, uh, like a book, basically. Um, oh. Well, a, a zine, I suppose. And uh, I also got, it was like in a, only some record stores, and maybe only even in Canada, they released a an LP, like if you bought a certain number of records or whatever, you got a free Rolling Stones record called The Early Tracks. Oh yeah, I saw that. And it's it doesn't have anything on it that's exciting, but it's I mean I I was spinning and was like oh yeah if you were to ask me if I like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, you know, I definitely prefer the Replacements, but I would go with <laughs> I would definitely go with the Rolling Stones over the Beatles, and uh, I like the early stuff. the um, The best thing I got oh, and I should mention the two things I did not locate that I wanted to get was that Joe Strummer 12 inch and the Salvation Army LP. Couldn't find them. Um, hopefully find them one day. But the one thing that I found, not a record store day release, but I found it while I was out and I couldn't even, I almost like kind of, I, I, I'm pretty sure I made a noise like when I found it in the bin um, because I was so excited to find it. And uh, I found this uh, compilation or a collection, I guess, by this band called Dynamic Truths. Hmm. And it's it's from 2010 and they made something like 250 of these on CD but it's a Richmond VA band but it's um it's guys from Honor Roll and Coral and um I don't know I just I love this stuff and uh I was really pumped to find that it's got like 20 tracks on it it's got their hard to find single and stuff like that so that's definitely the highlight of record store day for me but yeah I don't know it's a good excuse to go out and spend some dough at the record store though the only other thing i wanted to mention too brant is uh this was a this was something you pointed out to me i didn't know this existed and you probably know more about it than i do but it showed up in the mail this week and i thought i would mention it because there's a definite sst connection here it's the uh the wall of flowers record mike baguetta jim keltner and mike watt oh yeah right and uh, it was recorded in 2017, but it, I think it just came out. And well, it's a neat record. It's all astro, and um, it's kind of improv for some tracks. And sometimes, I guess it's a little bit more structured. The guitar kind of goes anywhere from like very avant-garde to almost sometimes almost because he because he kind of hits the whammy bar a fair amount kind of sounding like jay mascus from time to time but it's a neat record it's probably we talked about uh, like some of the watt lps that have come out lately big walnuts yonder uh, we talked about the steel gusher re-release this is probably my favorite one in a while i really liked it that new uh unknown instructors is out hey yeah haven't found it yet and there's a new sebado coming out you said jay mascus and it made me think of think of that the new Sebado act surprised. Yeah. yeah. That one, that one's going to get heavy rotation when I get it. Yeah. Always does. And their last, the last record was great. So was the 10 inch that came on around that time. It was great, but that's it. That's probably enough spieling about uh, new records, but yeah. there's, I, I guess it's, you know, there's lots of cool stuff out there still, right? Yeah. I got to find that green river live. It's not essential. Yeah. It's not essential. Actually, you know what? I mean, <laughs> Like, is the it one rough? Thing, 
No, it's it's not that rough, but you can tell that uh, like the thing that's funny about it is just listening to Mark Arm. Is he cracking he wise? Yeah, there's a there's some actually there's some okay kind of in between songs banter, and, but definitely like a lot of uh, yowling that sound a little a little metal, like not really like uh, you know Mark would sound later on in Green River or I'll. Uh, obviously in uh mud honey or even monkey wrench or anything but so it's i kind of chuckled because they're yeah. definitely like but this is like from 1984 so it's definitely early stuff i put this teenage head on when i got home like while we were having supper and my wife was like don't you already have this record i'm like <laughs> i <laughs> yeah <laughs> and she just shook her head well it's it's that good yeah that's the problem that's yeah. the problem probably you know i'd be interested to hear from people uh, some of our listeners out there, I mean, Teenage Head are obviously pretty darn big here in Canada. And I, I wonder if, you know, how well they're known in the U.S. I hope, well, I'm sure they are probably in New York. Yeah. Um, but I got to think that probably they're best known for being covered by bands like Screeching Weasel and whatnot. Yeah. They're in the movie class of 1984. They might be known for that. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I often wonder, like, you know, some of this stuff you can find, you know, I've managed to find all the Forgotten Rebels albums, for example, without looking too hard, you know, and all the teenage, like I said, I've got like five copies of this first Teenage Head record. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if they're that easy to come by in the States, you know what I mean? I don't know. Well, I think that Teenage Head reissue was a Canada only record store day thing, right? Oh, really? Wouldn't surprise. I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah. yeah. So I don't, it may be highly sought after in the US. Anyways, people should check it out if they have even like a passing interest in Ramones or Screeching Weasel for that matter. Or the Dolls. Oh yeah, for sure. I don't know. I'm more of a Teenage Head fan than a New York Dolls fan. I'm not going to comment on that, but <laughs> don't make me pick, Ryan. <laughs> 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 I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do okay. that. Yeah. Anyways, should we annihilate this week? Yes. History lesson, part one. All right, Brent, tell me about this single and, and the interview. Okay, well, the interview is with Robert Vodica. So, two things that are of interest to SST heads. As we'll get to in, in the interview, he ran New Alliance for, for many years. He says the dates, I think it was... 88 to 92 somewhere in there he was like the label manager of new alliance so during the years when it first became reactivated when when greg and chuck bought it from mike watt and martin tamborovich and also he wrote this master's thesis on black flag so uh why don't we why don't we get to the interview and then we'll come back and maybe dissect it a little bit and talk about the record does that work for you sounds good we're joined today by Robert Vodica. Robert, thanks for being on the podcast. Happy to be here. I guess we should start with your your master's thesis, which I believe we've mentioned a few times on the podcast, and reread it again last night. It's amazing. And I was saying to you that a couple weeks ago on one of our episodes, we had been talking, or I brought up the uh, Richie Ramone book, where they, he talks about having Black Flag open for them at the Palladium, which is actually where your your thesis starts on Black Flag, yeah. with you going to that show. Yes. Can you take us back to that? That's the that's the first time you saw Black Flag, right? Yes, yeah. it is. 
also say thank you for the kind words about the thesis. It, it's, it was um, finished in 2003, as we discussed before we, we started recording, that some of it is now that fresh in my mind, but I will do the best I can. Yeah, so I saw them, I was, I was going to Pomona College at that time, which is on the eastern edge of Los Angeles County, and a bunch of my friends and I drove in to see the show, which I guess has a reputation now, and I was, I think I just turned 20, maybe six weeks before that, and not knowing that much, the idea that the Ramones, Black Flag, and Minutemen would play a show together, which in retrospect seems crazy like that could ever happen but i just sort of took it for granted living as i did in los angeles county so we went to the show and it was on the way out and i don't i don't know exactly what happened um because i did this is actually i didn't do research on that show um beyond just starting with my own impressions and of the, being there for the thesis right. um i think there may have been people who couldn't get in and that there might have been some skirmishing outside i don't know but, but when we got outside the palladium um, it's on Sunset Boulevard, I think that's right. And when we got outside, just west of the venue, and I forget the cross street, I think it might be in the thesis. I have it with me. If, you, if people care about these details, um, <laughs> just west of the of the venue, there were dozens. I don't even know how many um, Los Angeles police officers in riot gear with helmets with the shields pulled down, you know, shields and batons forming in a line um, to sunset runs east-west. So they were kind of arrayed north-south and they started walking, sort of marching, I guess, down Sunset Boulevard trying to make people disperse. But we were just coming out of the, the show. The, we stayed until the Ramones finished. So it wasn't like people were hang. We were certainly not hanging out outside the venue and uh, you know, just like hanging out after the show, we were just trying to get back to the car, but they were moved. The police were moving fast enough that we weren't sure we were going to get to the car before they got to us. And they were, you know, knocking people down and all kinds of stuff. So the, you know, the band set made a huge impression on me, although, you know, I love the Ramones and the Minutemen and, but that night black flag made the biggest impression on me yeah. musically. And then this thing happened where the police, Again, I don't know what happened before, so maybe there was some reason for the police to be there. But really, the violence from the point in time when I encountered, you know, stepped outside, they were the ones who instigated things. It was the fans were not doing anything yeah. outrageous. And then, anyway, we can go back to the the history of that with Black Flag in the area if we want. But well, yeah, yeah, I was going to say that's my memory of what happened. Yeah, the date you list for that is November seventeenth, nineteen eighty four. Yes, but that's right. but your thesis goes all the way back to to the Keith Morris era and and their yes. interactions with police. Yes, and the the thesis actually it doesn't even get to damage um, in terms of the music and partly it was just because I wanted to get the damn thing finished and it was taking a long time and it's already uh, it's thirty five thousand words I don't know whatever it is it's, it, it it took a long time. And I just want to be clear, that is not a statement on my part about the value of the music later on or the turn that they made on my war, Slip It In. I like those records a lot. Um, it was just sort of a practical consideration. Right. Um, yeah, the band, I mean, it might make more sense to start with the Elk Lodge show in 1979, which was not a show that Black Flag played. Um, the Wipers and the Go-Go's, the Plugs, the Zeros, Alley Cats and X, I think were on that bill. Um, 
and the police came and stopped, the, you know, tried to, they came into the club. It wasn't really a club. It was an Elk Lodge. This is 1979 and stopped the show and beat on people. And the bands, you know, court Chuck and Des were there that night. They were there as fans, not playing. So they witnessed this happening and the bands were, you know, trying to be compliant with the police, but that really stuck with, Chuck, especially um, in the interviews that I did, and I should also be clear about that. The interviews I think were the summer of 1998. So right. again, this is, this is everybody's memory from a long time ago. Um, anyway, that kind of framed people's thinking about punk rock and the Los Angeles Police Department from that point on. That the police were sort of onto punk rockers at that point and perceived them as a problem. And, you know, the bands and the fans. Um, I guess the other thing I would say, there's a whole section in the thesis about the history of the Los Angeles Police Department that yeah. I don't know that we need to go into in great detail. And I think especially anybody who knows about the Rodney King beating, um, know, you know, knows something or I don't know. It's, that's long enough ago that maybe listeners don't know what that is. But that the reputation became worldwide and they had a particularly violent history. It was mostly directed at people of color, but then punk rockers by the late seventies kind of got on their radar about, well, we need to police them too. Yeah. No, the, the history is, is really, it's, it's really well written because it really shows like the, the training practices and the, and how leadership kind of steered things in that direction as far as their, yeah, I mean, they, they were hostility. <laughs> Yeah, well, they were the SWAT team started, SWAT department started with the LAPD, as best I can tell from the history of policing in, in the U.S. Um, I, you know, I don't know so much about transnational policing, but certainly in the U.S. Um, and they looked for people with military experience um, to, you know, to serve as officers. And they had a, a kind of military mindset towards parts of the Los Angeles population, not the whole city, but people of color, certainly. And that goes back to at least the 1950s. Anyway, so punk rockers came under that type of microscope by about 1979. That, so El then, that Elks Lodge show that you mentioned, is that kind of, do you think that was also the start of the split in maybe the punk rock scene as well, uh, pertaining to the, the violence? Hollywood, the Hollywood Orange County thing, you mean? Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, I want to say it was a little bit later. Again, I'm, I'm also, I was not hip enough, young enough to be at these, these shows yeah. <laughs> in 84, yeah. the first time I saw Black Flag. Um, so, but, but you do talk to many of the people and oh, you, yeah. you kind of yeah. uh, take, I think your stance is kind of the one that says like, you know, the, the Orange County people were not responsible for the, the violence. I, the reason I'm, I think the reason you may be interpreting that way is that I am almost, as a default, skeptical of kind of golden age narratives. Like, right. oh, in 1978, when punk rock started in Hollywood, everything was better. However, I mean, was there, and there certainly were, before Black Flag and the Orange County crowd sort of connected, there were outbreaks of violence at punk rock shows that didn't have anything to do with Black Flag. Right. Um, so I'm somewhat skeptical that it's entirely down to the people from Huntington Beach, but I know that lots of people at the time that was the impression they had, and that's the or the impression they remember or report back, um, you know, 20 years later, um, that they 15, 20, and even 20 years later, and even now, 
Um, I do think there was that show, I think 1979, that Tony Reflex from the Adolescents talked talked to me about that the Black Flag played at the church. In, have you have you talked about the church on the podcast? Some? Or? Oh yeah, yeah, we have. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. okay, so people know people have that. That's the that's the sort of plug for people to go back to the other episodes, right? So, <laughs> for sure, yeah. That the show at the church it was the first kind of, according to Tony Reflex, the first meeting of sort of these Hollywood punk rock people who probably were artier, like probably a little bit older and more interested in it as an art thing. And then these kind of, this kind of Orange County crowd that was, um, I think, younger teenagers in a lot of people's memories and more interested in the kind of visceral aspects of Black Flag and the other, other punk rock music at the time. Um, that's where Tony Reflex dates it to. That was also 1979. So at that point, they came together. But Black Flag... They had these flyering practices. I don't know if you've talked about people have talked about that at all. Yeah. But they, I think it's pretty well well known. Okay, well, no, this. Yeah, I, yeah. I can't. I don't know who your audience is exactly, but <laughs> anyway, they, they flyered all over Orange County and you know Orange County high schools and Huntington Beach High School in particular. And once, especially once they realized, oh, these people are coming to our shows, right. they did this thing that you know Black Flag was trying to have an audience. I mean, they whatever. I think they were trying to have an audience on their own terms musically. I don't think they changed the music to draw more people, but given that the, you know, they tried to, to draw an audience. And um, I think the Hollywood people perceived black flag doing that as introducing a kind of foreign body into the punk rock bloodstream um, in the Los Angeles area by 1980 or so, I would guess. So yeah. that's a long answer to, I'm a little bit skeptical, but I also think there are enough people reporting it that there seems to be a qualitative, their reporting of their experiences as being qualitative, qualitatively different, I think does matter or does reflect something, I would say. I mean, you talk a lot in the thesis about flags refusal to stop shows and intervene yeah. Yeah. and yeah. i was really interested in that because sure. you know you yeah. really get to their you know chuck and greg in particular the leaders at yeah. that time anyways right. you know and right. their mindset as to why they they yeah. felt that it was not up to them to to intervene yeah i mean it's, it's something that was really really drew me to this as a project i mean we haven't I realize I've been mentioned on this podcast, but maybe some of my interactions with them before the thesis would be helpful framing here. I, I don't know how yeah, widely people Well, I, I was kind of thinking we would get this out of the way and then talk about okay, your, okay. your uh, new alliance. Yeah, date. okay, sure. Just as a quick, quick mention of that, and I wasn't trying to divert the conversation. Right. I just think that my interactions with Chuck and Greg around the interviews I did with the thesis are framed by this, my other experiences. I, I worked for New Alliance Records um, from 1988 to 1992 as quote unquote label manager, but I was really the only employee. <laughs> uh, this was just at the period when Chuck, Greg, and Mugger Mugger was still in the picture at that point. They had bought New Alliance from Mike Watt and Mike, you know, after D Boone died, you know, after a while, Firehose got going, but Mike was, you know, there was a lot of stuff he didn't want to do anymore after right. D Boone died. Right. Um, and uh, anyway, so I was hired by Chuck and Greg to restart the label and had 
pretty much daily, you know, work week contact contact with both of them for four years, four and a half years. Right. Um, and I try to talk about this in the, the beginning of this. He says, I think my experiences with them and to a certain extent, they trusted me from having, having me work for them or work with them, gave me access to them or a kind of candor from them that maybe other people didn't get. Um, I also think that, you know, because this was an academic project, a kind of like what's the word, like more academic distance from it is not something I could really do because I ha I knew them in this other context. I wouldn't say that we're, we're any of us are close friends or anything. Right. But anyway, so but there, there went, was a trust factor there. They knew they knew who, I, who they were dealing with. And probably. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you do mention, you know, Greg Ginn had some trepidation about participating and that's. I think well established that he yeah. he doesn't like talking about this stuff. Right. He initially, you know, talked when I was trying to when I was talking to him on the phone, trying to set it up. Um, he didn't want to do it. He talked for a long time about you know being reluctant to do it, but eventually he did it. And we'll also say when he did agree to do it, he was incredibly generous. I mean, the thesis doesn't reflect this because it, again, I narrowed the project, and there's only, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't go doesn't go in from the interviews, but we talked for about three hours. I have about three hours a day. Um, the interview with Chuck was not as long. Anyway, to get back, so that's kind of the framing. Maybe I don't know how helpful these digressions are going to be for the listeners, but <laughs> that's part of the framing for what I would say is a kind of, you know, some kind of philosophical stance, not philo philosophical in the sense that they're, either of them are scholars of philosophy, but a kind of libertarianism, and, you know, it's helpful, I think, to remember the black flag is a symbol of anarchy and to, you don't like, not telling people what to do. It can be considered a tenet of some kind of anarchist thought. And they just didn't think, I mean, and even Des talked about this when I talked with him. He said, we just thought people would be smart enough not to be, you know, not to beat each other up while we're playing. And if they weren't, like if they, there wasn't much, you know, talking, especially Greg's like, well, I don't know what we could have done about it. Like yeah. what were we supposed to do to tell people to stop? And Chuck was particularly, I want to say adamant, but I remember, I remember this exchange very clearly that he wasn't yelling or anything. In fact, he got very soft-spoken and he just said that that would, that's not respectful to try to tell the audience how to react to the music. I mean, the, the parallel, a parallel I draw is that there the Black Flag was, you know, as much as they were trying to generate an audience, they also put a lot of confidence or trust in the audience that that they would follow the musical twists and turns, you know, particularly from My War on, or the, the second side of My War on, and then the kind of analog to that is that, you know, not not telling the audience what to do. We, we're going to play and we trust you. We, we hope you like the music and we hope you're going to follow. We believe in you that you can follow what we're doing musically and you know, then it's, don't it's an interesting take on it because the, the normal narrative you hear is the opposite, that they you know, if they respected their audience, they would have gave them six give pack them and, and rise above every show, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> well, there's right. I mean, and there's different, right? There's a, and they did. I mean, that I think you know, I made that point in, in the intro to the thesis that they they started with the process of weeding out, and it really upset. I guess it's a punk rock broadcast. We can swear, but yeah. like people really pissed off at them. <laughs> But then they were played Rise Above at the end and people went crazy like they forgot about how mad they were 45 minutes ago. <laughs> so pe people went crazy in a good way. 
Sure. I mean, there's a kind of, you know, I suppose it depends on kind of more long-standing showbiz tradition is that you give the people what they want and whatever, you know, whatever this is, whatever this kind of music is or positioning yourself as that the commercial convention, musical conversion, commercial conventions at a given moment are not exactly, you know, your template. And then there, then I think there is a kind of trust in the audience or belief in the audience that, that they will follow you. And, you know, the, the again, just to, repeat then it was also we're not going to tell you what to do right at the shows speaking of their sound like you mentioned earlier that you didn't go you know into the the my you didn't even go into damaged really right it's no but the way you describe their their sound i think mm -hmm. is applicable th throughout the duration oh, of their career oh, sure. right yeah, I so, think so, too. so I don't think you needed to necessarily. Like you really do a <laughs> do a great job of describing how they achieved that that black flag sound and putting it into words. Can you talk a little bit about that and try and sure. you know, tell uh, all, tell people how you hear the black flag sound? Sure. Well, thank you for that. That's very kind and generous. I think. I mean, for me, it starts with rhythm, and it's not just me. I mean, that's especially we're talking, Greg describe it in, in the interviews has a lot to do with rhythm and that Greg, even though, you know, famously as Dale Nixon, he's played bass on some black flag recordings and um, I guess somewhat famously, and then, you know, in various configurations, he's played bass in certain bands, but he's known as a guitar player. So I think people might be somewhat surprised that he, he thinks it starts with the drums that, right. that, and then the interplay between the bass and the drums and to a lot of black and then then the rhythm guitar sort of sits on top of that and then the leads are sitting in rhythmically within you know within what the what the bed of the bass and drums are doing i mean in some ways i don't know that this is a very in some ways i don't know how original this is of a way to talk about rock music but um but for greg especially what he was thinking about was a kind of what you might describe as rhythmic tension. And Chuck is particularly detailed in certain moments to talk about how the bass line would push ahead, which would be slightly ahead of beats, um, which, you know, if you, especially if they're in the early songs, they're playing pretty fast anyway. So it gives you this kind of propulsion. I mean, perhaps obviously you can't do that for the whole song or you end up measures ahead of the rest of the band. So then there's moments where you pull where he would pull back deliberately and then be slightly behind, which then gives you this kind of he I think he described it as a stall. So you feel this sort of lurching thing happening mm -hmm. and that's interplaying with the drums and then the guitar part. So you get this rhythmic tension that's shifting constantly in the songs. Um, so you get you get pushed ahead, then you get pulled back, and then you know, and they're playing fast. So it's not e I think it's not easy to do that when you're playing fast. Or slow. Um, so, <laughs> I, well, sure. So in some ways, be doing it. You're right. Yeah. I mean, it's not easy to do. Period. Yeah. In some ways, it might be harder to do slow because you somebody trying to play really slow is like Swans or Melvins or certain Black Sabbath that it might actually be harder to do because you yeah. have a tendency to speed up. But anyway, regardless, it's not that it's not that easy to do. So that quality, you know, I talked about the the Orange County crowd and the kind of visceral appeal of the music. I think it comes from the rhythm. And I don't know, is that is that the kind of answer you were looking for? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, Chuck and Greg were just very specific about this, that this what they were trying to do it, it's not an accident. And 
I think to the extent that people feel power in the music, I think it comes from this. I think to the extent that people sense, you know, experience it as violent, it comes from that, that some of the rhythmic shifts are really, are kind of violent. Um, I think, I mean, you know, a song like No Values, I think in particular is like that. I mean, it's pretty complicated rhythmically. And, and then I think when Robo was playing with them, I mean, Carducci attributes this to Robo being from, South America, which may be the case, but there are a lot of triplets in there, and right. that's so not something that's very typical. You know, like, like people get called. I get actually a little. I sometimes get a little irritated when people call Black Flag a hardcore band, right. and I understand what people are saying because they were, you know, they were as hardcore about the music as anybody could get. But I tend to think of hardcore as sort of post minor threat and everybody playing on the beat together, and. Black Flag never did that. Yeah. Anyway, so this is like a lot less interesting to me musically if everybody's playing on the beat together. And I'm not trying to slag Minor Threat. I think they're actually really quite good at that. Um, but all the people came after <laughs> were right. not as... Um, yeah. and, uh, anyway, so the triplets are not common. And even after he left the band, there was still all this rhythmic stuff going on. It was just punk bands didn't do. Yeah. And, oh, Black Flag and, still had swing in them as yeah. well too right and like as you say post minor threat a lot of bands completely yeah. were just right. totally lockstep so, right so stiff yeah. and i was not stiff yeah. um i mean which is not to say i don't think they're like the meters or some kind of funk band but within punk rock you know they just really stand out to me for, for these reasons um i don't know we we could talk about greg's note choice too if you want but sure. that may be more well covered territory well no i was gonna uh, say like you in in the thesis you really try to focus on the music and less yes. so on the lyrics right and you you sure. really place a, a high degree of importance on the the, the music yeah. which is not something you hear all the time in in writing about music it, you it tends uh, to focus on the lyrics often well sure i mean I, to some extent, I'm a writer, and writers deal with words, so it's easier for us to write about words than it is about right. music. Um, and music's not all that easy to write about, right? right? At least don't experience it as that. It's really um, hard to talk about too. So you know, we try we try and capture it in words every time we do this, and it's it's hard. Right. It's hard. You know what you you know what you think about it, but it's hard to find the words to to describe it. And and both of you, both you and Ryan, play right or played. Yeah, we do. I don't, I mean, I've fiddled around with things, but I don't really play. So I always feel like I'm an amateur at this. In terms of the music as opposed to the lyrics, I just think as much as people, you know, like we mentioned Rise Above or Six Pack, as much as people would sing along to those or sing along to them now, I just don't see Black Flag resonating the way it they did without the music. I mean, yeah. I, I just not, I don't think it was... I don't know, like an extreme opposite version might be Leonard Cohen or something like that, where they actually are sort of like more like poems. Right. And maybe they would stand up that way. And I'm not slagging Leonard Cohen's music either. Just that would be kind of the opposite end in a way. Um, and I think that about, you know, rock music in general, that it's kind of the physical, visceral effects that it has on people that are why it connects with people. Um, I mean, I think you've, I think I remember you saying, that you're a big ACDC fan, probably bigger than I am, but I like them a lot too. And it's the same thing. Like you, you can, I just can't imagine people responding to them the way that they For do. Sure. 
without the kind of the rhythm, you know, they're another example of a very different kind of rhythmic approach, but it's all rhythm. Yeah. It's more of a, a primal thing, right? Yeah. 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 And I, so I think that's that's harder to talk about too, because if you use the word primal, then you're sort of saying it's not up in your intellect and you're getting these physical effects that, you know, and your body's moving. So how do you write about that? And right. The reason I was adamant about it is because I think that's why people connect with the music and to just focus on the lyrics. I don't think we get at the reason the band resonates, resonated and I think still resonates today. I agree. Back to the issue of the LAPD, you talk about yeah. a show at Basie's Hall on November 1st, 1980, yes. which is one of the more interesting conversations I think you had with, with Chuck in particular, you know, mm-hmm. because the, the cops or the, the LAPD were clearly there looking for a fight. Like, I think Chuck's quote is, you know, like they were there before the the fans even showed up. They were there when Black Flag came to sound check, and and Chuck says we were gonna yeah. go in and do a sound check, and they were doing their equivalent, which I just yeah. thought was was pretty amazing quote. Yeah, he said that. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I tried to make this the centerpiece of this part of the the thesis um, because I think it's a really interesting story, and I was able to get, you know, I think five or six different eyewitness perspectives on it. The Los Angeles police also had this kind of public disorder intelligence division, I think is what they called it, which was an offshoot of their original Red Squad. So they were collecting intelligence on on all kinds of people all the time, politicians, labor leaders. It's not, I I never did a Freedom of Information Act request, and maybe somebody can hear this was enterprising, could do it, but to see if they actually did have files on Black Flag or not. But it's not, it's not out of the realm of you know, even possibility that it certainly seems entirely plausible. Right. And the number of run-ins between the band and the and the, the law enforcement in Southern California leading up to this show in 1980, because there were three, at least three other really prominent ones, at least two others, uh, sorry, and one at the Whiskey, which was in L.A. County, so it was the sheriffs, and then one at Blackie's where police, where the, the band actually ended up being thrown in jail because right. because of this other thing that they we didn't talk about, we talked about their attitudes towards audience, but they also had this ethos of, well, and it, for Chuck, it did come out of the Elks Lodge experience, which is why I wanted to use that as a framing starting point, that police would come and they, they would just sort of expect the band to stop out of some kind of respect for law enforcement authority. And Black Flag just was committed, like, we're not stopping. Yep. And that ended up getting them thrown in jail after the Blackie show on, um, public disorder i don't know i forget i think that's the the one when ron reyes reyes was in the band and he he, i think he mentions it on the the decline in decline yeah Yeah. it's he's talking about that show yeah Yeah, Um, i i don't recall which show it is that you're discussing with chuck in the thesis but you say he says something like you you ask him like why didn't you stop when they entered the hall it might have been this this was that basically yeah and he, he basically says they didn't have any right to be there yeah well Right. And Greg was always adamant about that, too, that yeah. whatever degree you and I now talked about some level of violence from, say, late 79 into 1980 at Black Flag shows that was increased from the earliest ones. Greg was adamant that the, the fans were not outrageous, that it was the police who behaved outrageously um, and created the problems. So, yeah, I mean, and Chuck said, I don't know, just I think he said something about like we could stop. They were beating the, the Basie's, as it has been described to me at the time, was kind of 
narrow and they were trying to force people out the back of they came in the police came in through the front trying to shut down the show and we're trying to force people out the back exit which was only two you know like a double doors um and there were like a thousand people in there so they couldn't get out very fast and the police were clubbing them to get people out so chuck said like we could stop but they were still going to Beat, they weren't gonna, if we stopped, they weren't going to stop beating people, and so we just played. Um, I, I think his quote is more something along the lines of uh, "We may we may as well be the soundtrack to it" or something like that. Yeah, yeah we could stop. <laughs> we could be the soundtrack. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they didn't stop until the police got on stage. Like they, the police got to the board and shut down the main. You know, they didn't unplug the mains, but they somehow got the mains. Um, in the hall off, but the band still had amplifiers, so they were still pounding away up there. They did, it didn't stop until the police were out on stage and unplugged the amplifiers, um, <laughs> which is, you know, it's kind of gutsy. Uh, it like takes huge balls. <laughs> like, not many bands would have all, <laughs> right. for sure, been on the same page, right. also, right? Like, right. And, you know, Chuck, again, in, in, when he talked about that show, he said, I think he said, I felt sold out by the bands at the Elks Lodge because they, you know, they tried to comply and the police just did the same thing anyway. So what difference is, you know, he didn't say this, but right. the implication was what difference does it make? So we're just going to play. Um, but this was the second or third prominent show in Los Angeles that the police had shut down and they, they tried, Black Flag later that year tried a couple of more and the same things happened. So effectively, the, the Los Angeles Police Department enforced a ban on Black Flag performances that lasted really until about 1984, until I, almost until I saw them at the, at the Palladium, which is not something people talk about a lot. That 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 a police, you know, police department can do. You know, there's no law, there was no restraining order, there's no. It was just de facto they couldn't play um, without the the show being stopped and you know some kind of riot in, in ensuing so they played more in orange county and you know obviously famously now i suppose they they toured all over the place in 1988 if i'm remembering right you had submitted a resume to sst and yes. greg ginn called you yes i was doing something in los angeles after i graduated from college not not dissimilar to what you and Ryan are doing are the two of you are much more dedicated than I was, but I was interviewing bands and editing the interview, inter edit, interview excerpts with music, with the songs and my voiceovers um, for the, for KSBC, which was the college radio station at Pomona college where I went. And then they let me do this after I graduated. Um, so then I was working at this record distributor. I'm, I'm not going to name them because <laughs> I, I don't want to say bad things. And I learned, I learned a lot. I wasn't trying to work in the music business, it just sort of happened. And I learned a lot and had a thought, this was the end of 87, the beginning of 88, after I quit the distributor, that, well, I learned this stuff and maybe I can apply it somewhere where I believe in what they're doing because I didn't believe in what they were doing at the distributor. So just, I knew Brian Long. I don't know if his name has come up. He, I'm not he, sure. He did college radio i think ray farrell brought him in right he, yep i've heard the name now that you've put it in context he, even after ray either ray brought him in or he came in just after ray because i don't remember but he when ray got pushed out brian was still there so i knew brian from college radio radio world but that's it i didn't know anybody else there 
and I just, you know, I respected Black Flag. I respected what SST was doing. So I just put her, I just sent her resume to Chuck, Greg, and Mugger, and I sent one to Brian so he would have one. Right. And yeah, Greg left a message on my phone machine, my answering machine. That's how long ago this was. <laughs> but it, but it wasn't the phone call you maybe expected. Well, he had something he, else in mind for you. Yeah, he didn't say anything about New Alliance on the on the voice message. He just said something like you have some interesting experience we'd love to talk to you so i can't i you know i went down there um and it was chuck and greg and a mugger came in for certain points of it i think but i maybe towards the end but i think it was mostly chuck and greg um mugger was was on his way to leaving um at that point i didn't know that at the time but they said they said i didn't know any of this but they said, you know, we, we, you know, Mike sold us new Alliance and we want to restart it. And are you interested in doing that? And I asked some questions like, are you just going to restart it and then end it again? Cause I'd like to have a job for, you know, <laughs> something more than six or 12 months. And they said, no, we want to keep it going. And, um, so I said, yes. And that was March of 1988, I think. And I worked, until November of 1992, running New Alliance. I mean, I'll be clear when I say that, that Greg still made the determinations about which bands to sign, but at that point it was pretty much handed over to me with parameters for recording budgets and budgets on artwork and things like that. Was there stuff happening? No. Right when you walked in the door with New Alliance? No. No no projects in the works? No, there were some in the works, but the, but in the works since D. Boone died at the end of 1985, you know, things a lot of things had been, I don't know exactly because it was before I was there, but right. Mike just didn't want anything to do with a lot of stuff for a while after D. Boone died, and that totally understandably, and I'm not, that's not saying anything bad about Mike or Martin Tamburovich about stuff didn't happen. So there, yes, there were, I think, four things that got handed to me right away, but they, my, my impression was they'd been sitting there for a while. Gotcha. Um, do, you, do you want, yeah, do you do want you, to know? Do you, do, you, do you recall what they were? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, one, one is Phantom Opera, um, which had an earlier record on new Alliance. It was Reggie Rector was the guitar player. I think he's got some cachet in this kind of world. Um, and one was a split spoken word album with Wanda Coleman and Michelle T. Clinton. Um, two poets, two African-American women poets, and then two that were run through Thurston Moore and Ecstatic Peace, although they, they, we did them as New Alliance, they also had the Ecstatic Peace logo, and I think we even, I think he even put, if you give me a second or you can look it up too, I think he even had an Ecstatic Peace catalog number on them too. Co- the Coachman, which was Thurston's band from 80, 79 and 80, just before Sonic Youth was formed, um, and then Rudolph Gray, a guitar player um, who played in Red Transistor with Von Elmo um, and was kind of around at the time. And that, that record is more like free jazz, you know, it's completely improvised, um, you know. Anyway, and that I, I, he and Thurston must have known each other from just that kind of punk rock. Like New York, New, Rudolph lived in New York, punk rock, Warden Tears. Glenn Branca, like that Wharton, because Wharton recorded the the two records that we did with Rudolph. Um, but anyway, that whole I don't know what New York arty rock and roll guitar stuff that was going on late seventies and early eighties. So those are the four. But my impression was they've all been sitting around 
anyway, so that's what I started working on. So where did it go from there? I mean, it's an interesting label because there's just really not a ton, ton of stuff like to find about it, but it's, there's so, it's such a wide range of stuff. It goes from like these kind of what I consider to be side projects like, uh, the, the gobble hoof thing or the purple, is it the purple, purple outside? Yeah. That one's really good. Lee Connor from, from the screaming trees. And then the kind of companion the Solomon Grundy, which was Van Connor's band. Right. Right. Screaming trees. Yeah. I would say Gobblehook really was a band because they, and they continued. I think you're talking about that because Jay Maskus played drums on that EP. Right. They continued as a band for a little while without Jay. Um, they were, so I tend to think of that as less a side project. They, like you know, maybe I think Jay's presence probably fostered the record coming out, but they continued on even after he stopped playing with them. And Charlie Nakajima, who is the singer in Gobblehoof, had played with Jay in Deep Wound, I think. Okay. Somebody can check that. <laughs> Somebody will let us know. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any idea why what the thought process was on why something would be chosen to, to be released on New Alliance as opposed to SST? Um, I know I've heard, I've heard on the on this podcast speculation about it um, that that was never articulated to me by anyone <laughs> yeah. like about it, would it tour or not. Um, I think part of it was, and this is somewhat speculative on my part, that the things we did at New Alliance tended to be lower budget. Um, and, and, you know, even though Greg and Chuck owned it and then, you know, mugger for a little while before he sold his interest. So in some ways it was the same pot of money, but, the, but there was a perception like we can't, we can't because SST in 1988 was, you know, there were a lot of, for, you know, that might've been the height of the number of employees who worked at the, at the label at that point, like the new Alliance can't do that. It's just me. Right. And, and you know, there's not going to be somebody calling records there's not going to be like a separate person calling record stores radio stations and press like it all has to run through me and i have to run the administrative production side of it too so there's some some sense of lower lower overhead you know something like rudolph gray probably always had less commercial potential um you know because free jazz is not especially free jazz that sounds like hard rock too is not you know um and I really like those records, but, and that, so that's not a knock on his music. And the one time I saw him play, I thought it was amazing. But it, it's not, you know, there, there's no, it's completely improvised. There's not right. song structure there. And the spoken word stuff was, you know, something that those are fairly cheap to record because you're not, you're not trying to get drum sounds for however long it takes to get drum sounds in a studio. You just, it's just a person in a room reading, um, yeah. so you don't need the same. Kind, you don't need the same kind of studio. It doesn't have to be as expensive. The last time we spoke, I really picked your brain about those spoken word releases because I'm I yeah. I was and am really intrigued by them. And yeah. I, I asked you which one which ones should I look for? And the one I believe what you recommend say? you said Jazz Speak <laughs> is a good one to oh, look yeah. for. And I found it and I I really do like it. So thanks for yeah. that. And you you had some really cool insight on that release. If you remember, why don't you tell <laughs> uh, tell everyone about some of the people that that play on that album and do poetry as well? Well, Mary Baraka reads on it. Um, he was known as Leroy Jones and wrote the book Blues People, which is a seminal, I think, seminal book about American music. I mean, it's probably more than fifty years old now, but for me, it had a really big impact on me when I read it. 
who else is on that? Um, <laughs> I'm trying to remember who else is on that. Burton Cummings is on that from, from the Guess yeah. Who. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. I had to work something from Canada into it. We've got to get our CanCon. Right. Cloud Daoud, who was a L.A. writer, does a, I think, really striking piece with Billy Higgins, who's a drummer who played with Ornette Coleman. And it's a, a piece about John Coltrane and... Right. Coltrane as a kind of uh, what is he he calls he calls kind of do that would calls John Coltrane liberator of the spirit from the shackles of form I think is the line <laughs> the John Coltrane as a sort of expression of freedom and as a kind of uh, lodestar for people seeking some kind of artistic freedom Ishmael Reed is on it uh, writer African American writer who I think is still alive and I think lives in Oakland. I'm trying to remember who, what stood out for you, and maybe I can tell you more. Oh, about I'm it. trying to recall now. I mean, a lot of the jazz musicians that are on it are fairly well known, I think. Do you want to take a second and I'll go grab it? And sure. Ah, oh, okay, yes. Archie Shep is on it. Right. <laughs> when did this come out? This came out 28 years ago. That's why I'm not <laughs> Yeah, Archie Shep is on it, Burton Cummings. Um, Wanda Coleman, whom I mentioned before, um, has a piece on it. Harry Northup who's right. a kind of character actor who was in a bunch of Scorsese films. Um, also had a couple releases on New Alliance. Yes, yes, we yeah, we did two, one or two of um, his solo, you know, his poetry. Who else would be interesting here? I mean, Ray Manzarek plays piano or on, on a piece with Michael C. Ford, who's a Los Angeles writer um, who had done a spoken word record on New Alliance before I got there. Right. Danny Weitzman, who has a, who was Shredder, if people go that, that far back into Flipside Land. His spoken word album is is really something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah. I would recommend it. Wet Dog Shape is really a striking record. It's a very, you know, it's like a kind of both verbal universe, but also a sound universe because it's it's you know there's kind of sound effect type things on it um, yeah. that it it's not just it's different from what I described. It's not just a person reading that he conceived of it as this other thing that he was doing. I think it's very funny and it is yeah. Um, anyway, so th those are the probably the highlights of people I would say on on jazz speak. I want to ask you about this this offshoot of New Alliance Ideas Records. I saw like the logo is what I first saw on like a, a a poster or something, and the only thing I've been able to find on it is this Bill Walton record. Men are made in oh, the paint. Issues records. It, oh, it's sorry, called, issues it's, records. It's, yes. Records. Yep. Yeah. 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 There are two things uh, that There's I know two. about. Um, there might have been more. Um, both about basketball. If you go, give me a second. I'll go look and see if I have any more. But there are two sure. about basketball. The idea, Greg's idea, um, and why? I guess I got assigned to it because they were all—they were not music; they were more like spoken word things. Um, and maybe did Harvey Kubernick bring us Bill Walton? I don't remember if Harvey was involved in that or not. But the idea is it would be not writers or spoken word type things, but people talk. And you know, it started with sports. People talking about what they knew about. Right. So there's one, Bill Walton was a basketball player, you know, until he retired. And then John Wooden, who's the coach of UCLA and coach Bill Walton and Walton brought Wooden to us talking about 
basketball. So both of them are mostly about basketball. Um, I, I don't remember what, what sparked this with Greg, but I ended up working on them a little bit. I think it was Harvey who, who brought Walton to us uh, originally. Was basketball a big part of the, the oh, culture at, at SST? <laughs> I don't know if it was part of the culture. Um, I, mean, I played basketball, you know, organized basketball at junior high and high school, and then a lot of pickup basketball afterwards. And Greg liked to play basketball, so we played a lot of basketball together when I was at New Alliance. Right. Um, I don't know besides us that there were other people playing. Pat Howard played sometimes. I don't know if his name has come up at all. So. He, yeah. um, he was a DJ at KXLU, and then I think he went, did he? I think he went on to work at Metal Blade for a while, if I'm remembering, which was more his thing musically than SST. And he played bass and left insane. Okay, um, and we've talked and about played, them. He played in the Nip Drivers for a little while too. H O E D, I think okay. that's right. Uh, so he he would play sometimes. Mostly it was Greg and me. We would go. Sometimes we would just play one on one, but we would find pickup games at a park or a gym nearby, and we would go play at lunch. The last time we talked, when I was grilling you about uh, all these spoken word albums, another one yeah. you rec- recommended was the Scott Richardson one. Right. Any other recommends for anybody who wants to dive into some of these spoken word albums? Well, and I would talk in particular about that one. He he played in the SRC, which is Ann Arbor band from the mid-60s. And from that time, I gather, he knew Ron Ashton. So Ron Ashton plays not on every track on that record, but he plays guitar and bass on a few as kind of backing music for Scott Richardson's words. So that's one reason I would point people towards it. If you're an Ron Ashton completist or just want to hear what he was doing. And I think Richardson's writing is pretty interesting too. Um, of the spoken word stuff, Maricela Norte, a woman who's, um, I think she, I think she's first generation native, but I think her parents were from Mexico and lived in Los Angeles. And that record, this is what I'm calling it a record. We only put it out on CD, but it's bilingual, not in the sense that it, that it's translated that, her writing moves shifts from English to Spanish within the same piece. Although some pieces are predominantly one and predominantly the other, but it's just, I think an interesting expression of that, that part of Southern California culture. And I think she has a lot of insights to the experience of um, immigrants from Mexico or or Latin America in the writing. Um, Wanda, Wanda Coleman, she's been dead for a little while now, but she's an award-winning poet. And we did I think three different records of hers. Let's see, what would I point to on the side that's not spoken word? I mean, I really do like the Rudolph Gray records. If people like people like Glenn Branca and that kind of Riz Chatham, I mean this is not composed that way, but the kind of the kind of like sort of overwhelming guitar sound that comes out of that that kind of um, music, Rudolph Gray sounds like that too. And he played on one of those records, he played with Rashid Ali, the drummer who had played with John Coltrane for a while. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, people who like Saccharin Trust would probably be interested in the two Jack Brewer band records. And Rich Ford played guitar on both of those, and he played in Swa for a while. What about but, SST? Because you and I have sure. corresponded a little bit, and it's clear that you have a lot of love for Angst and Slovenly. Sure. Sure. What should we look forward to? <laughs> oh, that's coming up. Yeah. Um, well, in particular, I talked about those bands just because I think, you know, as you've remarked, as the two of you have remarked on the podcast, I think they, they're they not 
as prominent in the narrative about about the label. On New Alliance, actually on New Alliance, I also want to come back to the, the things we mentioned in passing, but the things that the Connor brothers who are in the Screaming Trees, the, those two those two records I think people would, might like. Certainly Dingle, um, which is something Steve Anderson from Slovenly did around in, sometime in the early 90s. It was after I left. Um, it's an interesting I, record. <laughs> yeah. I believe Greg Ginn plays on it as well. Yeah, I think he's on it a little. A lot of people play on it. Um, Anderson is sort of the organizing force. I think the second, I mean, other people have talked about this, but I think the second Universal Congress of record is really striking. Prosperous and Qualified is is stunningly good, I think. I was having a Cruel Frederick, if you want to go on sort of the the jazz vector. I also like that record a lot. Sister Double, the Sister Double Happiness record, I think is, especially if people like the Dicks, but even if they didn't, um, the Sister Double Happiness record has a lot of gems on it. There's a song, one song on their freight train um, is getting some kind of second life because this songwriter from Milwaukee, Trapper Shep, has just put it out on his most recent record. Oh, and they're that's cool. Playing it all over the country. And like, I think they're over in Europe now, so they're playing. I mean, their version of it is not, it's not a sort of hard rock. That's not their thing, but they, right. it's definitely a, kind of loving version of, of the song i'll probably when we, we when we get off of this call <laughs> I remember 10 things it's sort of like look at the to go look at the wall of records and figure out which things i would pull out but i do think honestly i, just, I thought were great i mean i think i think you you and ryan you know, you, i think you've mentioned these the recordings are three four weeks displaced in time but yeah. as we're talking the most recent one of the podcasts I've listened to was about um, Mendingwall, the Ox record, and I think two of you were talking about how they were maybe ten years ahead of their time. Like, if, like, like what happened to indie rock in the '90s was, you know, and people know about them to some degree because of the Pixies, to right. Frank covering them um, and liking them. I guess the, I really liked them. I think just from a commercial standpoint, the, a thing that held them back and that was sort of implicit in the you know, discussion about Mendingwall, and maybe on Light Life too, is having two lead singers is kind of hard for an audience that to sort of, when people think about very commercially successful bands, there's usually one focal point. Yeah. And, Having to, as much as it was a really interesting thing they did, probably made it difficult. Yeah, Paul um, Rossler I, kind of said the same thing about DC Three and like his reluctance to sing for for partially for that reason, right? Like he he recognized right. that people want a front man. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think the Slavonly records are you know, just um, shimmering. They just, I just, I don't know. Tim, Tim Plowman and Tom Watson, those guitar players, I think are really. Yeah, incredible. You know, not to not to underplay the other three people who are in the band, and certainly Steve Anderson's lyrics and singing really striking. But I always was drawn to the guitar playing, particularly seeing them live. And I think this is probably true of most bands that are, you know I would think are any good. That both Angst and Slovenly were much harder hitting live than you would might expect from the from the recordings. Um, in particular, there there were time I would end up seeing angst i think you alluded to this in the podcast that they would sometimes end tours in los angeles because they could do a record at, at the end of the tour right. and when they would play they'd been playing every night for a month and they were just the way a band you, you played in a band so you know that 
what it sounds like if you play every night for a month and how to, how, how hard you can hit everything. Yeah, I thought they were great. Any plugs you want to get in tonight? I I know uh, you mentioned the tapes that you used to make. I, I I believe I the last time we talked about this, you were talking about how that's when you first came in contact with the Soul Asylum guys. Oh yeah, oh, right. That interview. Should, yes, that's right. <laughs> nice segue. You're doing it better than I um, Yes, I interviewed Soul Asylum in 1987, I think, and ended up getting to know them through the years but uh, more relevant that's a whole other story but more relevant to plugging my 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 very sporadic rock and roll writing <laughs> is um that the first soul asylum record was just reissued on omnivore records um as a cd and i wrote the liner notes for that and then there's a box set of all the twin tone the original twin tone releases along with one kinds of odds and ends ep um, and there are other, like Gina Arnold wrote part of the liner notes and then John Worcester wrote some and mine is kind of the lead piece in the booklet that's in the box set. It's the same piece that's in the yeah. reissue, say what you will. So if people... <laughs> it's really great. You need to do some more, some more liner notes. For uh, nerds like us, that's, that's why we buy these things, you know? <laughs> I was going to say, why people would buy a record for liner notes is beyond me. But yeah. if any of this has been entertaining at all, that's another place people can look at my writing. And yes, sporadically, I write about rock and roll. <laughs> well, thanks a lot for, the, for taking oh, the time tonight. It's, sure. it's it really fun. appreciated. It was fun. Happy to do it. I, ho I hope the audience gets something out of it. I'm sure they will. Thank you. All right. Very cool interview. And Brent, I don't know if you remember, uh, but you gave me a copy of his master's thesis in a nice, crisp, brand new yellow duo tang. <laughs> yeah, he, he was kind enough to share it with me. So I printed a copy for myself and a copy for you, hole punched it and put it in a duo tang. Yellow duo tang. Yeah. <laughs> I've read it like three times now. You want to hear a couple nuggets from it? Absolutely. Check this out. This is him talking about seeing them at the Palladium, which is how the thesis starts. Um, he, he's talking about the, the famous gig with the Ramones in the Minutemen. Check this out. Gin tore grating solos from his guitar. The notes bore only a tenuous relationship to their harmonic underpinnings. The extreme treble and volume constantly pushed his ampl amplifier up to and over the edge of feening back. Meanwhile, Kira's and Stevenson's shifting syncopations played hide-and-seek with the downbeat. In between the furious forays of his solos, Gin peeled off chords which roared off his amplifier and made the downbeat an absolute certainty. As I was trying to reorient myself to the gusts of sound blowing past my ears, some of the, some of the people around me be, began flipping off the band and screaming, Fuck you! The, he's describing the... The, tr the opening track, the process of weeding out that they opened with. Yeah. They had come for the anthems, not the metallic jazz erupting from the stage. As this reaction spread, Gin began playing more forcefully, seemingly getting off on the confrontation between the band and its fans. The three of them continued the mix of rehearsed riffs and improvisations off the chord sequence for a full 10 minutes before the song in ended. Pretty awesome stuff. Great description, yeah. Yeah. Got away with words. Yeah. That's probably my favorite part of the interview. I like all the stuff, you know, we we're talking about the police violence 
and an SSD. It made me think about this video that I saw recently that some dude made named uh, Aaron Michael Thomas. I think if you search uh, by any means a brief history of Black Flag, you'll find it. He It looks like he's made part one so, so far. It's just like a he's taken existing footage of Black Flag off of YouTube and kind of covered the the band's history from 76 to 80. And it kind of ends with some news footage from NBC of the Basie's Hall show. And Chuck's getting interviewed in this, like, studio on, like, you know, uh, some local news show. And yeah. and she says, the interviewer, this and it has the date, November 10th, 1980. And the, the lady doing the interview says, is the punk movement part of the Nazi movement? And Chuck, Chuck just goes all matter of fact, because there's probably some kids like Sig Heiling, I think, in the thing, or like wearing Nazi armbands or something, you know? You better be careful when you set up Chuck like that. Oh yeah, he goes, Chuck goes, no, it's the police. That's the Nazi movement. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah hey, who who did the video this is this guy aaron michael thomas he kind of took it's just he just kind of narrates over like existing black flag footage you know that he found off youtube and stuff oh i thought is that the same guy that played tubs or is that philip michael thomas <laughs> <laughs> i'm guessing it's not the same guy not the same guy maybe oh, okay. ask maybe ask crockett i don't know yeah, disregard. Okay. Uh, I like uh, hearing him talk, though, about, like, some of the wild stuff that New Alliance was putting out, right? Like, just, like, who else would put out that those types of recordings except New Alliance oh, yeah. in the later era? Well, there's a mix of, like, really accessible stuff that anybody who listens to this podcast would surely like. Like, he, he singles out the two Connor Brothers records, which are really good. They're both really good especially that Solomon Grundy album. But these spoken word ones, man, I've really started seeking. I've got 11 of them now. I'm looking at them right now. I'm going to do a thing for our blog eventually. Do you have them on cassette? No, I think they were CD only. I've, oh, okay. I thought they yeah. were cassette. Not I agree, CD. though, that, that Solomon Grundy is great. Yeah. It's a hidden gem on New Alliance for sure. Yeah, I'm going to do a thing on our blog once I get... I'm trying to get all of them. It's kind of a... I don't know how good it's going to be because most people are never going to probably be able to hear these unless they track them down themselves because I don't think any of them are on YouTube or anything. You're trying to get all of what? The spoken word releases that came out on New Alliance. Oh, man. Yeah. What else? Um, I mean, for me, the way he describes Gin sound or the Black Flag sound, you know, especially the the rhythmic stuff. Here's another thing I pulled from from the thesis. The speed of Black Flag's early music also contributed to the formidable task of achieving the sound Greg wanted. As he explained, playing slower, it's a little bit easier to find the groove so something can sound more powerful slower. He added that exceptions to this existed, but continued a few moments later. The music that we were playing was very difficult. What we were taking on, difficult in terms of getting the power and speed at the same time. Achieving this effect took a great deal of time, and according to Greg, Black Flag practiced six times a week for three to four hours at a stretch. And in my experience, this amount of rehearsal stands apart from most rock bands who practice one to three times a week. If you're lucky. Yeah. Yeah, like that's what I meant at the outset of the show, that 
he has a way of describing, you know, the tension in Black Flag's sound, you know, the way that, um, you know, the bass and the drums, which are both part of the rhythm section, but, but how they would come, you know, just very slightly in and out of sync as you're pushing the beat and the, yeah. ten the tension that that creates. Um, he had a way of describing it that was, uh, I don't know, I, I thought it was uh, pretty effective. Like, you know, even listening to the single, I was kind of like, okay. Yep. And like, you know. I noticed it too on the, on the, on the 12 inch. Yeah. And it's, and it's Kira and Anthony this yep. time too, right? But I, re I really noticed it on the second track. Best one yet? Yeah. The, the track starts out with Anthony and Kira. And for me, Kira's playing like with her fingers is, is essential. I mean, you're a bass player. You, you tell me, like, I don't think you could recreate that sound with a pick. It would be different. I mean, the, the attack, the way that you attack it with a pick versus your finger, you're, you're making the sound for different lengths of time. And so, you know, there's a very, very slight nuance there depending on, you know, the pressure, the speed, whatever. I mean, that's well, the, probably the pressure is, is part of it for sure. Because yeah. she's very precise, whereas when I hear somebody like Steve Harris from Iron Maiden, who I know you're not a Maiden fan, but I mean, he writes a lot of those songs and his playing is very key to their sound, but he is playing the strings really hard. Like they're bouncing off the pickups, you know? Yeah. Like you can hear them on the recordings. Same with Chuck though. Yeah, that's true. Chuck was like that versus Kira. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to sound like I know more than I do. So, well, int interesting for me though, is that, and I think maybe we touched on this in the interview, but Black Flag is like the hardcore band. They practically are the band that gets referenced every time hardcore comes up and they, they are so different from most hardcore bands. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I thought that was, that was a, a pretty, um, insightful comment as well yeah another thing i liked is we talked about issues records very briefly two releases about basketball yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he had a re he had a couple recommends for us too dingle which we've talked about before i've got that steve anderson from slovenly and he had a recommend sst 180 so only 100 releases from now and we'll be checking out Univ universal congress of prosperous and qualified can't wait the second album, yeah. Yeah. I know that one. That one's good. He's right. The ding the dingle one uh does not get repeat listens at my place. Yeah. You want to talk about the recording? Yeah, let's do that. History lesson part two. I think you mentioned in the in the spiel that we didn't talk about these tracks. We did, because they are all on the C D and cassette version of Who's Got the Ten and a Half. I don't know how much detail we went into that one, but Everyone should go back and check out SST 60 for a little more detail on the where Flag was at at this time, the recording sessions. Pretty sure these were recorded at, does it say on this one? Where they were recorded? It does not say on this release, but they were recorded, I'm pretty sure, at that recording session. Starry Night in Portland on August 23rd, 1985. Same recording session as Who's Got the Ten and a Half. So, maybe... I hate to say this, but maybe a little bit of a cash grab, kind of like uh, Star Power. Star Power. <laughs> Here's the thing. I don't know what it is, but I, maybe I'm in like a 12-inch mood or something like that. But 
I picked out a cut. Like one thing I picked out of this 12 inch that I did now that you remind me that it was in the 10 and a half record. One thing that I pick out here that I didn't then is um, some of those things that like Rollins isms, like going, Hey, like yeah. that. Yeah. It, he's starting to sound like the Rollins in Rollins band type thing. And I didn't really pick that out uh, last time. I don't know. Well, here's the thing for me. Um, I, yeah, I agree. Like I only have 10, who's got the 10 and a half on vinyl. So I need this because these tracks are worth having. And I seem to recall not really liking the song sinking a whole lot on that episode, but I liked it in this, this context. So maybe it's just taking it out of the, you know, the track listing from the, who's got the 10 and a half episode. I don't know. Yeah. I suspect that's not why this was released though. You're probably right. It was some, some way to get a little bit extra dough or something. Maybe these came out as two separate releases and were only combined later on. Yeah. This also came out as a cassette EP and a CD single in the nineties. I've got the CD single. Oh, do you? Yeah. That's what I have. Okay. And, and that's kind of why I'm like, Hmm, I wonder what the timing was. I'll see if I can figure it out. There's a few other tracks on the, who's got the 10 and a half CD and cassette wasted Louie Louie and the track called, they just call it jam, which is what it is. Those are not on the, who's got the 10 and a half LP. So I guess I'm missing a few tracks. Yeah. So who's got the 10 and a half came out in 86 and Annihilate came out in 86 as well. Yep. And who's got the 10 and a half? It came out. Oh man. I mean, I don't know if you can trust Discogs. It makes it, it seems to suggest that it came out on LP, CD and cassette in 86. Yeah. Oh yeah. They were releasing CDs by that point for sure. So I believe it. If I ever see it on CD, I guess I have to buy it so I can get Wasted Jam and Louie Louie. Who's got the 10 and a half on CD? I'll keep an eye out for you. All right. Or cassette, even cooler. <laughs> so one of the cool things about the cooler things about this is the cover. So yeah. in our episode with Jordan Schwartz, he, he talks a little bit about this and also Michael Whitaker mentions it as well in our interview with him. This is Jordan Schwartz as Scambo. And I guess like Rambo would have been popular at this time, right? So he's got like a bullet and be bullet belt, but instead of bullets, it's full of joints. There's like an eighth of weed and a pipe on the cover. There's a bong, which is fashioned out of a poster tube. We learned that from Michael Whitaker. He's got a bottle of Jack Daniels stuck in his like holster, a six pack of Bud with two missing. Looks like a bottle of Coke in his pocket, maybe like some mix for the Jack. He's got the, <laughs> he's got the black flag bars on his, on his chest and kind of down, like, you know, I guess <laughs> down by his crotch, I suppose, uh, is a woman who's also got the black flag bars on her back. The woman is Kara Nix and a few things about her. Again, Michael Whitaker from last weekend mentioned her. She's in his blog girl, she's girl 38 in his 52 girls blog. She was her SST punk name was Kara Noid. And she was the indie record store buyer for a big record store in Hollywood. And she was living with Janine, who is the sister of Linda Kite. And 
Janine was in the van, unfortunately, when uh, the accident occurred and uh, with, with D. Boone, and she was left in a wheelchair. And it was Janine who told Mugger to hire, hire Kara to take her place running SST, SST's mail order operation. And she was working closely with Michael Whitaker doing publicity and marketing. She left SST in 1990. And in this book that we've mentioned a few times, we were going to change the world. Right. Uh, interviews with women from the 1970s and 80s Southern California punk rock scene by Stacy Russo with a foreword by Mike Watt. There is a chapter on Karen Nix, a really good one written by her. So yeah, her, the image of her with Scambo is kind of like, you know, a movie poster image that appeared zillions of times, like the damsel in distress, even early, like the episode four, a new, a new hope star Wars. Like, yeah, there's that picture of Leia kind of like wrapped around Luke's leg or whatever. Same type of thing. Yeah. Apparently it was a, she's wearing a $3 black wig from a store in Watts that they went and picked up. Hmm. And then we've got Annihilate written in bullets on the cover, which is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Back cover doesn't really have much other than a whole bunch of credits for live recording and live engineering. Yeah. It's pretty bare bones, 12 inch, but it's good. You see who got credit for Mixdown, two people. Michael Boshears, who we've mentioned before, but then J.E. Sound, John Goodenough. Yeah. I don't know who John Goodenough is. Yeah, I don't know. Did you notice, too, that uh, I forgot to mention when you you pointed it out, the uh, the word annihilate is written in bullets over the first week of that month? Do you think that's the week they're supposed to annihilate? Could be. Well, you're supposed to annihilate all week long, so... <laughs> it's the it's the week of the second annihilate that week yeah we mentioned this i believe in the ten and a half episode but apparently the track annihilate this week is a response to the song everybody's working for the weekend which was written and recorded by the pride of calgary alberta canada lover boy and it was a popular track at the time and if you live in canada we have these stupid laws called CanCon laws. <laughs> Actually, I think I mentioned CanCon in the interview. Inter yeah. In the interview, CanCon is like there's a law that all radio stations in Canada have to play X amount of Canadian content. So there are certain songs by like, you know, Neil Young, for example, or Nickelback. <laughs> <laughs> that get played an insane amount and that Loverboy song everybody's working for the weekend is definitely one of them i can't believe we've mentioned miami vice rambo and Loverboy on this episode <laughs> i want out and star wars i'm done we mentioned star wars well you can't group star wars in with those three actually the first rambo movie is good never yeah. mind uh so the the a side is annihilate this week great track um I, I really like it. And then the flip side is two songs, Best One Yet, which is really good, and Sinking, which I could be wrong, but I think I kind of maybe didn't like that so much on the Who's Got the Ten and a Half episode. I like it here, though. I changed my opinion on it. What makes it stand out for you this time, then? I don't know. I just, I was humming it all week. I was walking around just going, hurts to be alone. Hurts to be alone. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. 
Well, anything else? I mean, we should mention that Naomi Peterson did the photography again. We 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 uh, had that brought up during the interview with Jordan Schwartz, I believe. Yeah. Um, but we definitely got to give Naomi props when we can. And oh, I think we should give a quick. We mentioned it before, but uh, you know, we've talked a ton about Henry, Greg, and Kira, but uh, we don't get Anthony that much on the show. And any chance to kind of just mention how killer Anthony oh, yeah. is on the kit and how um, how I don't think he gets kind of the recognition in Black Flag that he probably deserves. I think we should just uh, give Anthony some quick props. I, I love his drumming, man. Totally solid. Yeah. yeah. And and let's not forget the uh, <laughs> the, uh, the the Phil Rudd ball hugging jeans. Oh, yeah. <laughs> can't forget those man no should i that's the secret should i check for dead wax yeah Ooh. Ooh, that doesn't happen very often check Ooh, it man. Uh, my lp has a catalog in it too Ooh, what does it say on the top this is a new this must be a reissue is it one of the little tiny foldy yeah. ones it's got mo, it's got oh, mojack okay. in it so uh oh jordan schwartz doesn't want to know mojack <laughs> it's got mojack mojack and whore i don't want to know whore i know that you will, though. I will. Well, just think, when we get to horror, it'll be about 10 years from now, and maybe you won't be so close-minded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. No, no, uh, no dead wax. Dang it. I wonder if the dead wax is going to die off over time Might here. be done. It's pretty... No, I don't think it'll be done, but I feel like it will taper off. I've got a sneaking suspicion. Man, we're doing St. Vitus next week. There damn well better be dead wax on that one. Yeah, probably written backwards, eh? <laughs> maybe maybe Natus Copus wrote it backwards. <laughs> What's your pick for ballot result? Ballot result. I'm going to go with best one yet this time because I just get, you know, when uh, Kira and Anthony start off alone. I love it. Yeah, I went into this thinking it was a no-brainer for Annihilate this week, but I'm with you, man. Yeah, I... I've never been a fan of Annihilate this week. The lyrics are it's, cheesy, it's, it's, but I like the how the riff goes down a step. Da dun da dun da dun da dun da. I like that part. Yeah, yeah. you would. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, I don't know. It seems kind of I don't know. I don't know what to call it. Not jock, not thug, but like just the uh, the gang vocals on the recorded track where they're all singing Annihilate. Yeah. It's like eh. I don't know. This record this recording in in general for me is a little lame like i really think i'm a huge fan of greg ginn's guitar sound but not on this recording hmm. i like it when it's way more overdriven you know yeah do you like it when it's more trebly i'm just guessing yeah 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 i thought yeah. so you're a big fan of the treble yeah. <laughs> <laughs> here comes treble yeah ryan what's next week well you mentioned it uh next week it's sst 82 saint vitus Take out your, I don't know what you want to say, pitchforks? Maybe. Crosses? Black candles? Leather? Jean jackets? Choppers? It's it's St. Vitus, born too late brand. Yes, bell bottoms maybe. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Sleeveless vests? How about... Bandanas? Uh, Roach uh, clips? What's, what's, no, what's the amplifier? Not orange. What's the Sun? One? Yeah, take out your sun amps. There you go. <laughs> and get ready for St. Vitus. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. 
If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.